You're listening to The Bookstack with Annie, Nia, and Sydney. Hi, friends, and welcome to the fourth chapter of The Bookstack. I'm Nia. I'm Annie. And I'm Sydney. In today's chapter, our bookstacks are focused around true crime. People have been obsessed with reading about true crime since the 16th century, with early stories being transcribed as ballads and posted around the towns for the consumption of the literate population. Then, such as now, the coverage varied widely from topic to telling and were devoured just as voraciously. Even as the law systems changed and grew with modern technology and approaches, the pull of true crime by the population has stayed constant. I'm really excited for today's chapter. True crime is one of my favorite genres to read, watch, and listen to, and I can't wait to hear what's in our stacks. So let's get started. Annie, what's in your stack today? So I chose books. Looking at my list, I've got white collar crime and murder crime. I've got all sorts of stuff in here because when I was thinking about true crime, I thought that can't just be murder books, right? I'm fine with murder books, but I don't know. I thought there has to be something else. So I went in a different direction. (laughs) Uh, So the first one that I chose is The Devil in the White City, uh, Murder, Magic, and Madness at the Fair that Changed America. And it's by Eric Larson. Uh, He's one of those authors where I just read everything that he writes. Everything. Me too. Yeah. I have this book. I love this book. And I love reading and watching stuff that have to do with H.H. Holmes. So I am so glad that this is in your stack. Well, and here's the thing. I think this is the first book we've had that all three of us have read. Yeah. Hey, look at I think that. this is, I mean, this is a, this is a turning point oh. in the podcast. We're it's a milestone. It's a milestone. Each other. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Devil in the White City. It follows the events of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Uh, It's kind of two books in one, which some people don't like. It covers both the building and the issues and the complication and the excitement that was the World's Fair. And then across the street, this other thing was happening. These murders were happening. Uh, So they're not super connected, but they're both covered. But they're also really important. Like They are. It's really important to the story of how he got away with everything. Right. And so it... I don't know. When I first saw the title, I thought, oh, okay. So it's the devil in the white city, but it's more the devil near the white city, the devil and the white city happening at the same time. So anyway, the devil it, taking uh, advantage of the white city. Oh, there, there you go. go. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, it covers the building of the fair, the day-to-day activities, starting from when the fair was first, uh, like the bids for the fair and building it and bringing in the exhibitions. And it also follows uh, the story of Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, and he built a drugstore across from the World's Fair. And if you look into it, it's also known as his murder castle, which is just an amazing thing right there. Uh, and in his murder castle, he also built a crematorium and a gas chamber. Lots of hidden passageways. Yeah. And he got away with all of this because he was the architect of the building, the owner of the building. He was the person doing all the things. So no one really questioned why he was putting these long passageways and stairways and, you know, crematorium. Because well, and he kept changing building. building companies so that yeah. no one had. He killed people because they might have known too much or they were messing up with his plans. Like H.H. Holmes was a swindler. He tried to get away with a lot of things. He had a lot of different plans going on, a lot of different schemes. And it seems that his victims just got in the way of his ultimate plan to be a swindler next to the World's Fair. 
I think the, I think my favorite part about his story, I love that he got caught and they discovered all of his, it wasn't like something like 27 murders or something ridiculous. Yeah. They think. Um, yeah. Well, all of this is because, speculative. Yes. Because uh, they ended up doing a raid on his hotel because they were looking for insurance fraud. He had filed insurance, life insurance plans on all of his employees. And then one by one, each employee went missing. And it was only because of someone looking going, wait, he's claimed, a this same person's claimed a lot of life insurance policies that someone actually caught on. And then the FBI did this raid and went, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. This is, oh, that's a, that's a body. Oh, that's a, oh. Hang on there. Th hang on. Hang on. We might've uncovered several, several things here. Uh, but while you're reading all that about his murders and the grisly things that he did, you also get to read about the World's Fair and this magical city that was being built across the street. So you have these two very different worlds that are happening at the exact same time, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that I like. I like history as much as I do a good murder mystery. And so that was important to me to see how kind of how like how H.H. Holmes investigation also kind of built up the murder investigations of the nation. <laughs> Like there's the history of murder investigation and the history of something that I wish I could have gone to at the same time. But, you know, 1893 is the turn of the century. We've got cars, not yet, but kind of in the background. We've got a lot of big things that are going to explode. And so it's a pretty interesting time to look at. It is. So, yeah, the 1897 uh, World's Fair in London is actually where the first auto pedestrian death occurred oh. he was going eight miles an hour and she walked out in front of the car <laughs> and i guess like was so transfixed with Imagine the sight of car. this the sight of this vehicle coming through which was still under all of the locomotive rules in because there were there were no automotive laws at this point so they were all following locomotive laws which couldn't oh. pertain to to what was actually happening and the man apparently was like swerving all over the place and couldn't figure out how to drive in a straight line. And he just ran right into her and uh, she died like four hours later from internal bleeding. Of course she died four hours later. It was going eight miles an hour. <laughs> it's not, you know, mm. well, I mean, you have but, speed, but it, they're also, they were really heavy machines. They, that were, is true. they, they were, were super heavy. Yeah. yeah, they were, but I just, she will ever be remembered for the first death by automobile. <laughs> As will the London's World Fair. Yeah. yeah. Good things, bad things. World's Fair. <laughs> so what else do you have on your list? World's Fair. Or on your stack. Uh, the next one I have is My Friend Dahmer uh, by Durf Bachter. Uh, I just recently took a course in graphic novels. So I just read this like three weeks ago. Uh, I know it's not really true crime, but I still feel like it, I'm making it fit the mold. I, I think it qualifies because of who it is. Yeah, right. I agree. Right. I agree. The story doesn't really go into his crimes, but I mean, it's Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, yeah. Right. So it was written by a guy who went to school with Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, Durf back Durf went to school with him in Ohio in 1976. Uh, it's a graphic novel, received some awards. It received the ALA Alex Award in uh, 2013, which I think is a big deal. Uh, so it follows Dahmer 
and the author, Backdurf, in high school, and then it ends with Dahmer getting pulled over by the police with his first victim in the trunk of his car. So it doesn't really go into any of his killings. Uh, it doesn't really even go into his motive so much. It really just is the story of how he became who he became. Which I think is pretty relevant. I mean, they're they're monsters, but they're people too. They came from right. somewhere. Yeah. Right. Life is made up of decisions and choices. Mm-hmm. And this book really goes into that. Uh, as I was reading it, the thought of Jeffrey Dahmer and his killings keeps me up at night, but this book didn't because it really does show the path that he took, not what he did. I mean, the worst, there were some uh, pictures of animal mutilation, but that's it. So it's graphic, but not too graphic. Right. And even those pictures, it really just showed like a squirrel head on a stake. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't, it it didn't show quartering or anything like that. No, I'm trying to remember what else was included. Um, So it shows how he was before he became a serial killer. And it showed that he could have chosen a different path. The thing that stuck out to me the most in this book is how, how different the 1970s were from now. And how if this was happening now, um, CPS would have been all over that situation. I could see. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. yeah. Which I mean, that maybe that's why CPS pays more attention is because of. They've learned, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Like at one point, his parents said, we're moving and just left. And he was still in high school. And they just left him? They just left him. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I said, CPS would be all over this. Another part of the book, they go to a mall and he, Jeffrey Dahmer, was impersonating their interior, the interior decorator for their home who had some impediment. And so he would mimic that person and put on a show at the mall. That's of so just charming. This man who had a stutter and who couldn't walk very well and had all sorts of impediments and put on a show. And I thought, no, not. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. There's a lot going on there. That's a lot yeah. to unpack. Yeah. That's a hurt person trying to feel strong. So I did pull a quote from the beginning of the book, and this is an introduction, and it's by the author. He said, it's my belief that Dahmer didn't have to wind up a monster, that all those people didn't have to die horribly if only the adults in his life hadn't been so inexplicably, unforgivably, incomprehensibly clueless and or indifferent. Once Dahmer kills, however, I can't stress this enough, my sympathy for him ends. That's a great quote. I know. So you go into the book with that, knowing that there is sympathy for this child, for this young adult, but there's no sympathy for this murderer. Which is an interesting distinction. I agree. So I chose that book. Good. (laughs) I know. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. It's a really good. I enjoyed it. I don't need to know any more about Jeffrey Dahmer. Like all I looked up after this was how he died. That's it. And then I moved on Yeah. because I don't need to know all the things, but it was... I mean, I'm, I'm glad I read it. So there's that. Okay. On a lighter note, <laughs> because all your faces are just kind of internalizing the we're, book. I just we're processing. We're still, we're processing. We're still just processing. <laughs> the adults need to process too. <laughs> uh, the last book I chose is Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. And it's by John Carreyrow. This one came out in 2018. And it is a super, super recent story. This is the book, The Person Behind Theranos. Oh, yeah. She's been in the news a bit. Yeah, she's been in the news quite a bit. Uh, It's Elizabeth Holmes and her startup company, Theranos. 
She told people that she had the technology to run multiple blood tests on one panel using a minimal amount of blood, which is really helpful for people who have to get a lot of tests done, who have to have their blood drawn, their blood drawn a lot. Uh, her machines would take, again, like a very, very minimal amount of blood and just fill up a whole panel with all the different chemicals to run all the different tests. And they would be uh, read and discussed pretty much immediately. Uh, she raised millions of dollars, but our technology just isn't there yet. It's not. Right. It's a big leap from what we're doing now, which is get your blood drawn. It does maybe three tests, goes off to a lab, come ba comes back a week later. It's a big jump to, hey, you can run 40 tests in three hours. So wow. she couldn't deliver on her promises because we're just not there. Uh, her team did end up developing a few machines, but they never worked. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. at one point, Theranos was working with Safeway out in California because that's where they have their headquarters. Uh, to Isn't run that a grocery chain? It is, but like CVS, they. Oh, and, okay. Well, no, it's a grocery store. But it's a grocery store. I'm trying to think. Like my, Kroger, we don't we don't have them in in Utah. Right. So so I've Safeway been, is. But I think I've seen them in other in other uh, states when I've gone into them. I'm, I'm trying to think what the comparison would be for what's in Utah. Uh, Smiths. Yeah, they're like a lot like Smiths. Mm -hmm. With, with yeah, the bigger so, pharmacy. Yeah, yeah. So Smith's has a little yeah. pharmacy and Kroger. That's where I am. We have a little pharmacy in our Kroger's, which is also Smith's. Uh, yeah. But they were building these like luxury pharmacies inside of Safeway so that they could have these machines. And they actually built some of these pharmacies <laughs> into Safeway. So I have a friend who oh. went, oh gosh, I mean, this was published in 2018. So she probably went like three years ago and she saw one of the clinics, like they were still there, even though Elizabeth Holmes was being prosecuted for fraud and all the things. And it was just this huge, huge scandal. It was, they're comparing it to Enron. Which was massive. Which was yeah. massive back, you know, when that happened. Yeah. Uh, but it was a really, really big deal. People invested millions of dollars into her company and she just never, never delivered. And if you listen to a, uh, an interview with her, she doesn't even sound remorseful. It's like she believed this could happen. She believed it was happening when it was not at all. Wow. Yeah. It's still going on. You can still read about her and the fun things that are happening in her life. Well, because... Her trial hasn't ended yet. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Like she's still, she's still in the middle of her trial. Yep. yep. This was a really, really big deal. Yeah. Awesome. So I would be really, I would be really surprised if they didn't release an update to this book after the trial yeah. and everything has resolved. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they're turning it into a movie. This is my shocked face. <laughs> I feel like all of my books have just shocked you. No, I, I, I really like your picks, honestly. Like, yeah, I they're think really good. all of them are really interesting. I'm really glad that, that you shared the picks that you picked because I really yeah, think it's all of them are really interesting. Mia, Ooh, what about not. you? <laughs> what books are you reading? Or so, what books are you, did you pick? I picked, uh, my first one is called No Stone Unturned, um, the true story of the world's premier forensic investigators by Steve Jackson. And Steve Jackson is actually part of this particular group. It's a group called Necrosearch International. This book came out in 2002. It 
is a very fascinating read. It, it kind of goes back and forth between how the group was formed and also the cases that they've worked on. And if you've watched any old cold case file shows, they've actually had a few from this group on that show. So the big famous one that comes to my mind is Michelle Wallace from Colorado, where they found her hair in the 80s, but they hadn't found her body. And this group using uh, geology and using, like they were looking at the pollen that was found in the hair and a few other things to figure out maybe what elevation the body was at. They found her body in the 90s and they were able to prosecute the person for murder because of this group. It's a nonprofit organization that offers assistance through unconventional tools. So it's scientists and other experts in different fields that go, hey, you know, they get requested to come in and they come in and offer their services for free, but they're wow. experts in their field. So they know how to testify when they have to go to court. That's really cool. Yes. Yeah. That's, it, that's it's a, really, well, I know what book I just put on my list. Yeah, oh, I like that. That's really cool. It's really well written. It's really, it's really engaging. I, I powered through this book when I read it and it's, I really liked it. The next one on my list is called The Murder Room by Michael Capuzzo. This one came out in 2010 and talks about the creation of the VDOC Society. It's a group of 82 people because there were 82. It's based off of a man named VDOC that was in France in the 1800s and he lived for 82 years. So this group has 82 members. So I'm going to, I'm going to back up. So the, the person they created this off of ran the very first private detective agency in history. He oh. created his 17 years before the Pinkertons were founded oh. here in the US. He is also credited for founding, I believe it's the French National Police. I'm basing that off of a rough Google translation and my French is not good enough to read what it's actually called. But this particular organization in France is the one that inspired Scotland Yard and oh. the FBI. Wow. So that is who this guy is. He's an ex-con. He's an Wait, ex-con. Wait, what? Yeah. Hey, they make the... Exactly. Sometimes you need someone so, who knows the system, who's been on the other side of the system to then go. Yeah. And that's what I feel he like did. This he was, sh- feel like that just goes right into the TV show leverage, but let's keep going. It could be. <laughs> um, he's actually credited as also creating the first team of modern criminalists who were ex-cons because they knew how to commit the crimes. And so he went, hey, if you were doing this, how would you have done it? And so he used people who were experts in their fields to do this. So that's um, really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. So you have William Fleischer, who's a former FBI agent, a polygraph examiner, and a former Philadelphia cop. You have Frank Bender, who's a forensic artist. Uh, an example of his work is if you ever saw the, he was a family annihilator who killed all his family, List. If you've ever seen the bust that they used on America's Most Wanted to track down List, it's Frank Bender's work. And they talk about how he has a very like supernatural touch when he would create these busts of age, age progression or something like that. He was very, very famous. And Richard Walter, who's a forensic psychologist. So the three of them were kind of good friends. They talked about how awful it was that one in three murder cases are not being solved in the US and they created the VDOC Society. It's a very exclusive group. You have to be an expert in forensics or you have to be a very, you know, well-seasoned detective to join. And again, it's capped at 82 members. When you're in, you're in. Unless you have to step back for some reason, you're swearing to stay on and do this. They meet every month in Philly to go over cold cases that have been presented to them. And they're very specific for their criteria of what they will listen to. Um, It has to be at least two years old. So at least two years cold. It has to be a murder case. They only do murders and the victim has or cannot have committed any crimes for it to be looked at. So So they're really looking at innocent. Yes. Innocent two years. Okay. And that might seem a little harsh, but again, if you've got such an open, like there's so many cold cases out there. Yeah. You got to find a way to narrow it down. You have to draw a line. 
Yeah, I don't think it, I mean, I understand why they would make it so narrow. There are other groups that can help too. And we are the group that helps with this very specific thing. Yep. So they have a very like gourmet lunch presentation where you come in and you present it to this entire group of people. So the book talks about the formation of the group and how it got there. And it also talks about some of the cases that they have helped solve. So it was, again, totally sucks you in. It's a really nice one if you can only pick it up in bits and pieces. I powered through it in less than a week, but highly, highly recommend that one. Do they only solve crimes in the, the Philadelphia area no no they do they, they go recruit worldwide? globally i believe okay. they do go worldwide wow so they just happen to meet in philly and then the last one i have is called last call it is by what, a, what a perfect Green. pick for your last pick i know right i try i try i do my best this particular one is incredibly recent it came out last year oh so super super new it drove home how recent it was when i was reading the advanced copy for this one because it talked about how one of the people that he interviewed had actually died of covid that is how recent that this wow. book is so I'm sorry. Um, did you just flex that you got an advanced copy? I did. Mm-hmm. She did. Just I like how I like how naturally you dropped that in. <laughs> she just threw that it in there. Such like, a hey, natural cool. drop. Like, yeah, I'm so cool. You I got know. an advanced copy. All I was hey, reading the you, advanced copy. If you know where to go. This is the way to do it. Clearly, so I, don't know where to I gotta find ways to read now that I'm momming. So this is that's my like. If I do that, it limits what my choices are, so I don't get overwhelmed. But about my my pick here, <laughs> last call is focusing on a very unknown serial killer that was operating in New York in the 80s and 90s. And you have an incredibly high crime rate happening in the 80s and 90s, really really high murder rate. But you have a killer who's hunting in gay bars in New York City, and all of his victims were from the gay. Community. He has all of the traits of all the most well-known serial killers in the same area, all in you know, the same era, the ones that we all know, but his victims are nearly lost because of the outrageous murder rates that were happening because of the AIDS epidemic and the fact that they were gay men. So you have a victim pool that is very undersung and underrepresented in the news. They are not pretty white girls. And so they they really didn't get the coverage that they should have gotten. The police did not take it seriously for a long time for the same reason. But again, part of that was the high murder rates, but it's not just that. I I am shaking my head. Yeah. So, so hard right now. Like that's, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. So um, Elon Green went through, he did a lot of interviews with a lot of people who knew the victims. He pulled a lot of newspaper accounts as well. And he, this is his first foray as an author for this. And he did a really, really good job. He pulls you in right out of the gate it's heartbreaking because he introduces you to each victim like you know them. And it's so sad because they're fascinating people. And I wish I'd gotten to know them, you know, even though that would have been impossible. I'd lived on the other end of the country and was, you know, a little mite then. Yeah. So you you get to know them and you grieve for each one as they die. It is, Uh it really, really pulls you in. And he kind of talks about what the killer's doing in the background, but he does not name who it is until it gets close to the end. So you don't know who it is either. So it's like you're following as it was happening and you only know what they know as it's happening. Yep. That sounds amazing for so many reasons. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really good. It's a little bit heavier. I mean, these, all the ones I picked talk about murders. So it's, you know, (laughs) this is true crime. Yep. So, but yeah, that's, he did a really good job giving the victims a voice and their story is what the book is about. He talks about the serial killer, but the serial killer has the least amount of like direct storyline in the book, which is kind of the best part, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. 
that it it doesn't glorify the killer it glorifies those who lost their lives too soon yep i like that yeah so yeah. that's that's a big reason why this is on my list is he did a really nice job giving these these poor lost soul a voice and painting the picture and you know giving you a full you have you feel like you are right there in this wow. bar when this happens that is my that is the third one from my stack sydney what do you have in your stack i am so excited for this week <laughs> I, I mean, I send you guys pictures of how many times I buy true crime books, especially when they are historical <laughs> in, in terms of, I don't feel like it could be me. I think I have to be able to disassociate a little bit to enjoy it. The oldie murders are a little easier to, to handle. Yeah. Yeah. I completely, that's exactly how I feel. I want to think about it as something that happened, not could happen. I mean, I know right. it, it happens every day, but I don't want to, I don't want to think about that because then it makes it hard to leave the house. <laughs> So I hear you. (laughs) So my first book in my stack is my favorite. It's actually the book that got me hooked on nonfiction. I used to exclusively read fiction just as an escape. I never read anything that could have possibly been in the realm of true because then it was just reality. Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Graham changed all of that for me. And I've actually been reading more nonfiction than fiction since I picked up this book because I loved it so much and it sucked me in. I devoured it in two days. Wow. I want to read this book so badly. It's been on my list for a while now. Just do me a favor and move it to the top. You'll thank me after you do. Maybe. Because it's very well written. It has the narrative historical descriptions that you would expect in a a true crime book that took place in the 1920s, but it also has the pace of a murder mystery. And he does a really good job of setting up the chapters to have miniature cliffhangers to get you to want to keep reading and to figure out what's going on. It's told in three chronicles. So there's three very different perspectives that it's providing story information from. Okay. Chronicle one follows Anna Brown, who is an Osage Indian. It gives a bit of her history and it very, very lightly dabbles into the Indian boarding schools and stuff that was happening that we don't talk about enough in this country for most no, people. No, we to really know. don't. We do not talk about that we enough. We don't. I don't it's think not, we really talk about it at all. Nope. I think it's it's very hard to find information about how horrible these Indian boarding schools were. This barely touches on it and it moves forward just to to kind of take you to the present, which was the 1920s. Background before I jump in, the Osage Indians were originally from Kansas and then the government kept pushing them off their land because they wanted the land for white settlers. And so they kept moving them and moving them. And they finally were like, well, you can move over to this area over here, or you can move to this rocky outcropping in Oklahoma. And the chief was like, well, we'll take the rocky outcropping in Oklahoma because if we pick this flat area that you can farm, you're just going to take it from us again. So we'll go here because you won't kick us off rocks that you can't plant with. And they were like, all right, deal. And he said, but as part of our deal, everything in the land, everything under the land is ours. And they were, and the government was like, weird way to say it, but all right. (laughs) And so as things started progressing and white people started demanding the land, they started saying, okay, but you, everything that's on top of the land, you can buy, but everything under the land is part of our reservation. You can only inherit it. You can't buy it. And that involved all the mineral rights. Oil Uh, was found. Yep. Oklahoma. Oil was found. And overnight, the entire tribe became multimillionaires in the 1920s. It was just inordinate amounts of money that they were inheriting Mm -hmm. or that they were being given because of their head rights to the, the reservation. So you have this massive push of all these white people that are coming to the reservation to marry an Osage. Of course. <laughs> Yikes. And 
So Anna Brown and all of her sisters are all married to white men. Her older sister, who's only in her 30s, gets some kind of wasting illness that they were really confused about and she dies. And so the widower then marries another sister and like keeps it in the family, which is just weird. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... The mom gets sick. And as she's starting to get sick with the same wasting illness that her eldest daughter died from, or that one of her daughters died from, another daughter is found shot in the head. And then the mom dies. And then the other sister gets blown up. And all of these like things are happening around this family to the point where like this woman literally has her two children from her husband. She ends up having a third and is starting to get sick. She has diabetes and she thinks that it's getting worse. And everyone and the doctors keep coming to give her insulin, but she's not getting better. She's getting worse. She's starting to think she's getting poor. Poisoned, and that that's what's been causing all of the other deaths in her family. So she gives her child to another family to raise her daughter so that she can keep her safe. Oh yeah. man, I can't imagine having to be in that position. Something happens and that child ends up dying too. And like everyone in this family is dying except for her white husband and his uncle, who is like basically the mayor of the town and runs the town and, and tells everyone what they can and cannot own and who they can and cannot be around. And That's not suspicious at all. It's right? not suspicious at all. No, no. The amount of deaths that happen in this book, you read about 24, and so you think that there was a a series of 24 murders that happened over four years, and it's it's really more like over 100. Right, because those are just the ones that were written about. Those were just the ones that that, talked about. Those are are just the ones that he had enough information as a a journalist that was researching this to be able to write something about and and show how it connected to other things that were happening. The average lifespan (laughs) for an Osage Indian in the 1920s, the average lifespan because of everything that was happening and how fast they were being killed off. The average lifespan was 38 years old. I would have four years to live. It's not allowed. I, no, I, I, that's not a lot. I can't even fathom Mm-mm. how people could do this to other people. But so Chronicle One follows with Anna and her first seven chapters are about her. And it ends with a cliffhanger of her trying to report to, to people outside of her household that she thinks she's being poisoned. And then it jumps to Chronicle Two that oh. follows uh, Tom White, who ends up being brought in four, uh, four years after the first murders happen mm-hmm. to Molly Brown, not Anna Brown. Anna was the one that got shot. So I'm mixing up my names. Uh, Tom uh, Tom White gets brought in and he ends up heading up the investigation to try to solve the murders. But, and he's sent by J. Edgar Hoover. So J. Edgar Hoover sends Tom White to come solve Anna's murder and uh, Henry Rohn's murder and all these other murders that keep happening. Any white person that tries to help solve some of the murders or stand up for the Osage ends up getting thrown off trains or shot or wow. yeah, not suspicious, or not poison. at all. Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's insane. So Tom White, who leads up the investigation, his his chronicle it tells it gives a lot of his backstory to kind of show the man he was raised to be and kind of that ethos and that decision that no matter what I have to do the right thing mm-hmm. kind of shows his his way into that and how he how he came to the job that he has and then what he did after that uh, that case that he had and that was really interesting to follow his life and then part three is the author David Gran talking about when he went to the Osage Reservation in 2012 to interview people that were either survivors or were relatives of people that had been killed. He interviews a descendant who was from Molly Brown, who's from the first Chronicle. She was the daughter of Cowboy, 
Molly's son. And it talked about how the night that his aunt and uncle got blown up, with the, they blew up a house. The night that that house blew up, him and his sister and his mother were supposed to be spending the night. And his dad knew they were supposed to be spending the night. Oh, wow. And that's why that was the date set for the house to be blown up. But he ended up having an earache. So everyone stayed home. And it's the only reason they lived. But he had to grow up wow. knowing his dad tried to kill him for money. That is just, that's horrifying. Isn't that insane? Oh, anyway, I, I devoured this book because it was just one moment after the next of, wait, what? Are you kidding me? What is happening? But they're actually making a movie of this book that's set to be post-production and coming out later this year. It has Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, Brendan Fraser. Like it's it's a, a fairly big cast. So I'm kind of excited. Um, you know, I was looking over our titles. There's a significant number of them that are being turned into movies. We're like so read right the on the first. cusp of this. Good job, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Of all the of all the books that that David Grant has written, though, because I after reading this book, I was like, well, I loved this book, so I'm sure I'll love his other books. So I went out and bought a bunch of his other books. Mm-hmm. One of his his other big book that he sold movie rights to was The Lost City of Z, which was very big. It had Tom Holland in it, and I didn't like it. I like had to try to force myself to get through it. I it uh, wasn't it wasn't as it wasn't that as well was written too. It, Interesting. It, it felt like it was going to be really exciting. It felt like it was going to be this like I you know you read the premise and you're like, oh my gosh this is going to be amazing. And then I slogged yeah. through it. There oh, was a very unsatisfying ending. And I was I'm just going to read it. But no, I'm going into it with that now. I would love if you did just so you can validate how I felt about it or don't. And then we can have a conversation about why you liked it. There we go. Let's do that. <laughs> I like this one. The second book in my stack is called American Sherlock Murders Forensics and the Birth of the American CSI. It's by Kate Winkler Dawson. This book is fascinating. It's about half the size of the other books. So it's actually a really fast read. It tells the story of Edward Oscar Heinrich, who had a 40 plus year career solving cases as a forensic scientist. He did over 2000 cases. And he pioneered a lot of the techniques that are either still around today or inspired today's techniques. That is so and cool. It is. And it, it went back and forth between setting up parts of the stories that were, that he solved the cases of and going into his real life, into his daily life and, and kind of following his life. Mm-hmm. And it just like wove in his cases as it told the story of his life. And it was really, it was really well-written. It was an easy read and it wasn't graphic or hard to get through because it, it really was a fun story story of his life that happened to involve solving cases of a variety of resolved murders that he solved cases of, but it also went into his feuds with this other guy that was a forensic scientist that he didn't think was as good as he was. Of course. And, you know, he got called to be expert witness on the stand instead of me. And it was this big feud. And, and so it, it had these humorous parts to it that were, that kept it really light and fun. The last book in my stack is Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, the true story of New York City's greatest female detective and the 1917 missing girl case that captivated a nation. I picked stories that all had really, really long titles. I noticed that when I was looking at true crime books, I thought <laughs> these all, all have really long titles, the short title, and then, oh, some other stuff. Yeah, here's Short your subtitle. Yeah. Some other stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's very common. Uh, this one's by Brad Riga, and he actually has some other books that are. He didn't let me down like David Grant's other books did. I because <laughs> I I read more of his and I I liked his. We'll get into his other books in different chapters. But uh, this one, Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, tells the story of how Mrs. Grace Humiston solved the missing girl case of Ruth Kruger when dozens of detectives couldn't for months and months and months. They had her picture everywhere. Detectives were coming in from out of town trying to solve this missing girl case and. 
and no one could figure out what had happened. And this woman handled it when no one else could in 1917, when everyone just thought women were supposed to be these little trophy wives. But she put herself through law school. She demonstrated her abilities strongly enough that they let her move from the night classes where all of the females and Black individuals took law school classes and allowed her to take the daytime classes with the white men because she was performing so well. And then she took on this mantle of righting wrongs and and fighting for the people that otherwise wouldn't have a voice. And all of her cases in her law practice centered around helping people. And I thought that was really cool, but it has two chronologies that go back and forth between like 1917 and 1905. And so it has the quote unquote main timeline of the Ruth Kruger missing girl case in 1917. And it has, it starts in 1905 with Ruth, with Grace Humiston's life and how she rose up to the position where she was, where she could solve this missing girl case that ends up, well, we'll just say it ends up being solved. And then it goes on to, to tell the other parts of her life so that you see how Grace ended up and, and what the rest of her life was. And so it has heavy parts to it, but it has a really positive ending and it shows you some really great parts of a woman's life that reminds you of, of how far we've come, but also of how hard women fought to do what we look at as everyday things now. 100 years later. I've read That's this really one. Cool. This one's really good. I really enjoyed this one too for a You've lot read of those that points. One too? I have. I yeah, I'm I'm with Sydney. I highly recommend this one. This book is I, I mean it took me it took me more than it took me about a week to get through this one. This one was not the blow through that you were, I was able to do with the others. Um, week this one took bad, a little though. bit longer. No, I mean, it was still, it was still very captivating. It was still very well written. Mm-hmm. Um, it tells the story as, as if it's a narrative, despite the fact that it's pieced together yeah. from journals and law proceedings and diaries. It, and It definitely had that feel of like, it's being told like a fictional story. It did. Not a fictional story. And I think that's my favorite style Mine because too. it just sucks you in and it allows mm-hmm. you to escape and tell you a story and you actually get to learn something while you're at it. The Devil in the White City was like, that too which is it reads like fiction it does all of his stuff does that's why one of the reasons i love this stuff me too agreed agreed well so those were our stacks i love that um what are we reading right now we're getting ready to pick up next so i'm continuing with the dressmakers of Auschwitz. Uh, again, one of those, and here's your subtitle, The True <laughs> Story of the Women Who Sewed to Survive by Lucy Adlington. I took a break from that and now I'm picking it back up. And then I started The Feather Thief, Beauty Obsession and the Natural History Heist of the Century by Kirk Wallace Johnson. I started that this week. It is about a guy who went and stole a bunch of birds from a natural history, like stuffed them into his suitcase, just the skins and the feathers so that they could make Victoria Victorian fly fishing lures. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. I it's have weird. No, what? But I am learning so much about fly fishing and lures. <laughs> so much. Wow. Okay. Uh-huh. Did you want to know more about fly fishing and lures? I didn't, but I really like history. So it's cool to see why these birds went extinct and like, I don't know. They couldn't even get any peace once they were dead. No. Mm-mm. <laughs> And it, it talks about how the Victorian, like the ladies' hats, that people are now going through their attics and finding their Victorian era hats from like their ancestors and selling the feathers for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. What? Okay. That is people All weird. Right. The deep seedy world of fly fishing. Who knew? Huh. Who knew? And everyone yeah. thought it was boring. Right? 
I the feather thief. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. I told you I will read anything and everything. <laughs> I take it back. Not boring, uneventful. Yes. The actual catching yeah. of the fish. Yes. So I've actually I... thought about learning how to do that at some point, but you know, I like to to fish and not have to think about anything. So, huh, huh. Yep. Okay then. Well, Nib, what about you? What are you reading right now? I am looking to pick up one called The Cold Vanish, um, seeking the missing in North America's wildlands. So it's looking at uh, people who go out in the wilderness and just disappear and the interesting people who go looking for them. So like they, they, they disappear, like they just don't want to be found. So they decide to go off the grid and live there or they or we're like hiking for a day and, and we're never found. And so it's like a body yeah, rescue. They they go out into the national parks or out into the forest to go camp or hike or something and just don't come back. Interesting. So oh. yeah. So it you know, sounds still, really good. Like, whenever those stories come up, whenever I see them, you know, this guy went out running and we can't find him. It's fascinating to follow along with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fascinating. So, I agree. Yep. So that, that sounded really good to me. We'll, we'll see how far I get into it, but um, that's that's what's on my list. Sydney, what's on yours? I went book shopping at Barnes & Noble. Uh-oh. Um, I know. I should <laughs> not be left alone. I actually took someone to supervise me. You bought but, more, didn't oh. you? But uh, she's an enabler. Yep. Another uh, one that, so... that says, yes, you'll just you'll help each other in air quotes and it's help find stuff <laughs> instead of not buy more. Right, right. Yeah. She, I looked at her and I was like, I think I need this. And she goes, then obviously you do. You know, good friend. I yeah. loved it. That's the person I want to go to the books for all the time with now. It's, oh, my hands are full. Well, here, let me help you carry stuff. I have two oh, hands. Here. Really it's, good not a, it's not a stop. You don't, you know, you can't carry it anymore. It's, well, I'll help. But so I went to the bookstore. The first one that I decided to start off that new pile is called The Education of a Coroner by John Bateson. And it follows the 40-year career of a coroner in Marin County, California, and some of his most interesting cases and how they solved them. Yes. That sounds interesting. I so far I'm three chapters in and I am so like I've decided it's gonna be my nightly read. Like that's what I'm gonna read to wind down. But <laughs> what what better than true crime to help you wind down before bed? Yeah. <laughs> I've you know, to, to go to sleep before. I mean Whatever works, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but so far, I mean, it's not super gruesome or super gory because it's following the life of the the gentleman and, and how he became a coroner. And did you know that you don't have to be a medical examiner to be a coroner? Yeah. Is I, it weird that that doesn't surprise me? No, I've, I've heard that's that's a problem. I, there, I was shocked. There's a book that talks about, there were, I think, poisonings in New York City and how that had evolved into creating something that was not just an appointed position, but someone who was an expert and actually knew what they were doing doing. Um, yeah, I'll have to think about that one and get back to you on what it was called. But that is how I knew about that is I was reading about how we actually had to make it something that was an official, you know, expert position and not just someone who's like, you know, I owe you a favor. I'm going to put you in charge of that office because I can. Yeah. Well, I think when we do a sequel to this chapter, because I think there are so many books that we have to talk about again. Oh, definitely. uh, That will recurring episode. You'll have that title and it'll be like a cliffhanger until the sequel. There we go. And then, and then we'll then we'll share it next time. And I will tell all about fly fishing. Yeah, excellent. All about fly fishing. I can't believe I'm going to say this. I didn't think it would ever come out of my mouth, but I'm so excited to learn more about fly fishing and the seedy underworld of it. The seedy underbelly. Well, uh, friends, thanks for listening to this chapter of the book stack. As we sign off, we'd like to leave you with some food for thought, and we'll see you next time when we bring our favorite beautifully written books to share for our next stack. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Bookstack Trio and follow us at Bookstack Trio on Instagram to see a full listing of today's stack. Each of us is a book waiting to be written, and that book, if written, 
Results in a Person Explained. Thomas M. Seregnano, The Constant Outsider. Mm-hmm.